Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the opportunity of coming together over the Word of God. We thank you that we have had this clear record of your will and your intentions for the human race. And we want to thank you for the glories that it contains. We thank you, Father, that we can be a wise person by studying all it says and by obeying every word. We thank you it is a lamp unto our feet that we should know where we should go and where we are going. Father, I pray tonight, Father, that your word should so enlighten our understanding that, Father, we should see a whole new perspective. Father, that we should understand everything that's going on around us. Father, we know that this is the devil's world and we know that the, the mystery of iniquity is working on this planet. But, Father, we thank you that we are not children of the devil and we are not children of the world, but we are your children. And, Father, I thank you. You have given to us the ability to know what your thinking is about this planet of ours. I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that through tonight and through the rest of the course, we are going to receive such faith in your ability to handle every situation, in your ability, the fact that you know everything, even before it happens, that, Father, we should show by our freedom from worry, our freedom from pressure, we should show and demonstrate to this world that there is a way of escape from all the pressures around Father, I'm praying in Jesus' name we should not just be Christians, but that we should be glorious Christians and ambassadors for Jesus Christ to show forth his excellencies, to show forth his praises, that indeed the world might see us as a people who live and walk and have our being with Jesus our King. Father, tonight show your kingship in the midst of us. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Amen. In the first Bible study, which we had last time, we laid a number of foundations. You remember that by the end of the last Bible study, we had laid out a general plan of the history of the earth. It wasn't detailed, it certainly didn't cover everything, but it was the general plan that we arrive at if we take Scripture literally. Last week as well, we saw the the attempts of fallen man to be independent of God, God's dealings and God's judgment, and also the establishment of this very important thing which the Bible calls Mystery Babylon. It overlaps very greatly with the mystery of iniquity, but you remember it is that flow in history which is set upon the destruction of God's plan. God has a plan for the earth, but mystery Babylon is flowing in our society, trying to thwart God's plan on every level. The reason it's called mystery, by the way, is because a mystery is something which is hidden to the normal man. In fact, a mystery is something which only those in the know, as I would say, those who have a revelation of its secret, actually can see around them. Those of us who are Christians know full well that the way that the earth is going, the way the nations behave, it's not, not just chaotic, it isn't just a chance thing. There is a reason plan behind it, which is called Mystery Babylon, and that plan is to destroy whatever God wants to do. Isn't it amazing the way most nations seem to oppose Israel? On the, Israel as a nation on the face of this earth. That's quite amazing. 
really, for such a small nation. There isn't such a hoo-ha about Syria or uh, about Lebanon even, but everyone seems to oppose Israel. It is only Christians with a biblical perspective who can see what is behind such opposition. The rise of communism isn't just a chance thing, you know. Oh no, it's uh, Satan's masterpiece. He thinks it's his way of stopping God's purpose for the last days. In a few weeks' time, we're going to see how Satan's masterpiece is going to crumple to dust. But nevertheless, there it is. And we who are in the know are able to see what is this plan that is moving through history. Right, all of that was based upon Genesis chapter 11. So it shouldn't surprise anyone here to know that God presents his alternative where? In Genesis chapter 12. And as soon as Genesis 11 draws to its close, the next statement that is made is God's alternative to sinful man's uh, attempts at independence. Here is sinful man. Sinful man says, if God is watching over me as a father figure, if God is going to impose his standards upon me, if God is going to come along and judge me if I break his standards, then I am not free, he says. And so... The only conclusion he can come to is, well, in order to get free, I've got to go against God and oppose his plan and stop his plan to the best of my ability. He thinks blessing, he thinks prosperity, he thinks abundance can flow from independence from God, and he thinks that only freedom only comes if man and man alone is supreme authority. What does God do? Quite simply, God says, well, you're absolutely wrong. And he sets up a, a, a family, and through that family he is going to show that actually the opposite is true. That there is only true freedom, that there is only true blessing, that there is only true prosperity when people are 100% involved with God. When they are 100% submitted to his plan, and when they are 100% in his grace flow proceeding from the throne of grace. That's what God is going to demonstrate. By the way, we can see it as clear as a bell, of course. Let me give you two examples. There are two areas in which independent man is shown to be absolutely um, powerless. I would say the first area is the one concerning judgment. Man thinks that if you forget about sin, it will just run away. Man thinks that if you go to a psychiatrist often enough, the psychiatrist will soon say, now stop this stupid notion that you've done something wrong. In other words, get free of judgment. But unfortunately for man, the truth is that after death, there comes judgment. And no matter how free they try and be on the face of this earth, the dreadful day is coming when they will stand before their Lord God and their Maker, and they will give account of what they have done, the works that they have done on the face of this earth. And God, with all of those who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll weigh them up in the balance, balances and he'll say, you have been found wanted. And judgment will come. For 70 years of their life, they may have convinced themselves that judgment will not come, but for the rest of eternity, they will be experiencing God's horrific judgment. Oh, that's what man says. But look at God's marvellous scheme through Jesus Christ. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have passed from death unto life. And it says in Romans 8.1 that he that is in Christ, anyone who is in Christ, 
is not under condemnation, shall not be judged in any way. And suddenly, in Jesus Christ, we have freedom from judgment, especially eternal judgment. That's the most wonderful thing. Freedom, not on man's terms, but certainly on God's terms. Oh, have a look at death. Here is a man very busy trying to persuade himself that death does not come at the end. Right? Very busy. I can even imagine that there might be some bills passed through some parliaments in the world which actually say something like this. We decide that it is man's right to choose whether he lives or whether he dies. And of course, all the people say, Amen! What a good idea! It's up to man to choose. Beloved, choose as they may. They're going to die one day. Doctors have not yet found a cure to death. Have you noticed that? Right? You can't have an injection, and they say, well, now you're immunized against death. They haven't discovered such a drug. Death will always come as an end. So man persuades himself, oh, no, death is, isn't going to come. I think it was C.S. Lewis, you know, who once uh, had to speak to a very nervous group of soldiers about to go to war. And there they all were, all nervous and standing there. And he said to them, he said, you're nervous, he says, because you think going to war increases your chances of dying. And then he stepped back and he looked at them again. He said, but you're wrong. He said, your chances of dying are 100%. <laughs> For you're all going to die, he says. He says, but going to war, all it does, it brings the reality closer. And he says, and that's why I'm stood before you. And he gave them the gospel. Praise God. And I think it was just last week, I saw a headline in one of the newspapers saying um, something like this, Richard Harris's scare. I thought I was going to die, says famous star. <laughs> Amazing. We have news for Richard Harris. He is going to die. <laughs> he really will. He's going to die. Oh, definitely he is. But what happened? Suddenly the reality of his mortality hit him, and then he got all scared. But it's coming. No matter how man may try, no matter how man may claim independence, these things are coming. But God has provided. God has provided a wonderful way of escape. He that believeth on me, said Jesus Christ, though he be dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth on me shall never die. Do you believe these things? Oh yes, praise God. Freedom only on God's terms and only in Christ. And where was it all established? Where was it established that man and God are interrelated and so get blessed? Why? It was in Genesis 12, directly after Genesis chapter 11. Praise his wonderful name. And God in Genesis 12 establishes a family, a family which for the rest of the earth's history is going to be the, the cockpit of earth's history. It is going to be the deciding family as far as every nation of this earth is concerned. And in this family is going to come the line of salvation. God was going to do it. And there, there it was, the establishment of the Jewish nation. To them God gave the adoption. To them God gave the calling. To them God gave the glory. To them he gave the law. To them he gave the promises and the covenant. Marvellous. The very oracles of God were given to this nation. And why? Because God wanted one nation to demonstrate that he has dealings with man. That was what it was all about. Now let's go to the beginning and see how God established it. And so we have to go to a man called Abraham or Abram. Right? 
I'm going to say Abraham. And let's, first of all, have a look at this man. First of all, could I say this? Abraham was not a Jew. Could I make that quite clear? There was no such thing as a Jew when Abraham was born. All the people were Gentiles. And Abraham actually came from Mesopotamia, and he was a Chaldean or a Chaldean, depending on how you pronounce it. All right? He was not a Jew. He was going to be the father of the Jews, but before Abraham was, there was no such thing as a Jew. Turn to Acts chapter 7. That surprised you all. <laughs> Acts chapter 7. And we'll begin in verse 2. And here is Stephen talking to the Jewish leaders, and he starts talking about Abraham. And his point is, listen, he says, God doesn't only give revelation to the Jews. Why? Before Abraham became a Hebrew, he gave him revelation. Verse 2. Acts 7, 2. And Stephen said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt at Haran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him unto this land wherein ye now dwell. Now there's the story of Abraham's call. It's repeated again. Go back in the Bible to Joshua and chapter 24. And Joshua is calling all the tribes of Israel together, and he begins with Abraham. And again, verse 2. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2. And we learn something else. Not only was Abraham not a Jew, because there, there wasn't any such thing, he was also an idolater. He used to serve other gods. Verse 2, Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Now what's the flood? The flood is another name, it's a nickname for the river Euphrates. This river, the river Euphrates, coming down. They used to call it the flood. I think the reason for that was that as the floodwaters receded, they followed down from Mount Ararat, down the river Euphrates, and they called the river after the flood that was receding. Because, of course, they saw the waters going down in front of them. All right? And so they called it the flood. So it says, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Here's the river Euphrates. There's Israel. And they dwelt, whoops, wrong direction down there. And they dwelt on the other side of the flood. This is tremendously important because, of course, they dwelt on the other side. And to get into the land, Abraham had to cross over the river. And do you know what the Hebrew word for one who crosses the river is? It's the word Hebrew. Hebrew actually means one who crosses over the river. And the moment Abraham set foot on the other side of the river, he was a Hebrew. That is the birth of the Jewish nation, praise God, just for your information. Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. 
And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Now there it is. And here is Abraham. He is happy. He is content. He is an idolater on this side. But suddenly he receives a revelation of God and he hears the voice of God saying something to him. And the result is he moved in faith. He was living in this land. He had to get out of that land. And so we then end up in Genesis chapter 12, which is actually a report of God's calling to Abraham. And we call this whole section the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant. A covenant, for those of you who haven't heard my series on the blood of the New Covenant, is simply a legal agreement between two people, two parties, one person and a party, one party and a person. Right? Any form of legal agreement. And here God enters into agreement with Abraham, and we call it, therefore, the Abrahamic Covenant. And here it is. Now the Lord, verse 1, had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country. It is very significant God should say that. Because do you remember last time we saw that after the flood, after Noah's flood, God had said to the people, Get out and scatter. And they refused. They stayed just in the pleasant land. Here, God says exactly the same thing to Abraham. But look what Abraham does. He actually gets out. Now God has found his man, praise God, a man who is going to be obedient as far as his word is concerned. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show you. And Abraham does it. And then God lists the blessings that are going to come to Abraham. And marvelous blessings they are as well. Let's just read them, verse 2 and verse 3. Here's a promise. First, I will make of thee a great nation. Abraham didn't have any descendants at this time, but God's promise is, Abraham, you're going to be a wonderful and a great nation. Second, I will bless thee. That's a promise. Abraham was blessed back home in his own land. But God says, when you go into the land that I'm going to give you, I will bless you right there. Next, I will make thy name great. And today, incidentally, it is interesting that Christians, Jews, and Mohammedans all revere the name of Abraham. So that is part of this promise that we can definitely say, yes, it's come to pass. Look, and thou shalt be a blessing. That's the next. Verse 3, we get a most marvellous phrase. I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse him that curseth thee. Right? Now there's a promise. Abraham, if anyone tries to bless you, they're going to be doubly blessed. Abraham, if anyone tries to curse you, they're going to be cursed. But can you see the heart of God in that particular sentence? Have a look at it. I will bless them, plural, who will bless you. Isn't that lovely? God, it says, is swift to bless. He loves to bless. Any person that even gives them a cup of cold water, why, they're gloriously blessed. Right In Matthew 25, we uh, hear about some people who gave them a cup of cold water just because they were God's. Wonderful blessing. I will bless them, plural. But it doesn't say I will bless them that... uh, Sorry, I will curse them that curse thee. It says I will curse him that curseth thee. Singular. 
And God is not only swift to bless, he's slow to chide. You see, he's slow to put his cursing on anyone. He holds back, he counts to ten before he does it. And all of that is summed up in this little verse. Then the next bit is, And in thee, in you, Abraham, shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, obviously, that is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw in the last series. But do you know, it's not only that. It also refers to all of his descendants. So that wherever there is a Jew, there is a point of blessing if someone will bless them. That's marvelous. All nations will be blessed by the Jews, but specifically they will be blessed by the person called Jesus Christ. Now, all of these things were, were a covenant as far as God was concerned. They're promises to Abraham. There are more details given. Go over to verse 7, and we see a little addition that God makes in verse 7. And the Lord appeared unto Abraham, or Abram, and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And all of a sudden, it's not just a blessing on his children. Now there's real estate attached to the blessing. He's going to have some land as well. Now, today we're going to talk only about the seed. Next time, we're going to deal with the promise concerning the land. And next time, because of our study uh, with the land, we're going to see how we know that Israel has a future. All right? But that is a preview of coming attractions. It's not for tonight. Remember Abraham. Here he is. He has a wife who is barren. He has no children, therefore. He has no land at this point. But what does he do? He moves out according to the word of God that I will make of thee a great nation. Do you know, for 25 years, he had sexual relations with his wife, believing that God would overcome her barrenness. 25 years. Now that's faith, isn't it? You must admit, that is really some faith. 25 years. And he just believed. That's all. Staggering. And you know, he was 100 years of age when finally Isaac, his son, appeared on the scene. Amazing. 100 years of age. Sarah was 90. And you know, his faith didn't stop at that point. He didn't say, oh, well, that's a relief. And, and then hang up his faith. Not at all, as we would do. We'd say, well, now I've got it. Marvellous. And so it goes on. Not at all. He was a continual man of faith, this Abraham. And that's why God blessed him in the way that he did. Do you know, there came a time when Isaac was a little boy, when God said to him, right, uh, Abraham, it's time to sacrifice your son. I gave him to you, and I think I want him back. So uh, would you mind sacrificing him? And do you know, Abraham, he didn't say, oh, I must have misheard this. You know, in a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom and safety. So I better check this out with people who will say no, you know? Um, he didn't say that. He said, okay, he started collecting the wood. He started getting all the bits together and said, oh, come along, Isaac. And along they went. And you know, the Bible paints a picture of him quite happily going up with his son Isaac. I used to think when I read that, that actually he believed that even if Isaac was sacrificed there, God would give him another son. That's what I used to think. Oh, that was dead wrong. Absolutely wrong. Keep your finger in the place and go to Hebrews chapter 11 and see what he really believed. And then you'll understand why he is a man after father's heart. Hebrews 11, verse 17 to 19. 
Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And here is Abraham's belief in the resurrection of the dead. Oh yes, he believed that even if he sacrificed Isaac, why? God would simply say, right, that's very good. Come on, Isaac, back to life. That's what he believed. And here we know why Abraham was beloved of God, because I'll tell you this, just 2,000 years later, God the Father would have to offer up his own son. And I'll tell you something, it says in the Bible he is, was pleased to bruise him. He would offer him up with the same speed that Abraham went to offer up Isaac. Why? Knowing full well that three days later he would be raised from the dead. Praise God. And here is the secret of Abraham's blessing. A tremendous man of faith. Oh, but I'm so comforted that sometimes his faith failed. I'm so glad about that. You know, it's almost as if uh, this is true of us all. You know, our faith is tested and sometimes it seems to stumble. But soon it's back again. And with Abraham, there were two occasions when he doubted God's protection. And there were two occasions when he doubted he'd get a son at all. And yet God seemed to have closed his eyes to those occasions because he still says he was a man of faith. Par excellence. Marvellous. And so praise you, Lord, that you blink at our imperfections. Isn't that wonderful? Glory to Jesus. All right, let's have a look at one of the times that Abraham's faith seemed to fail. Genesis 15. And we see where God repeats his marvellous promise. Genesis 15, and I begin uh, verse 2. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of, of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. Despite your promise, I still haven't got him. That's what he says. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven and count the number of stars, if thou be able to, to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And do you notice there, we get the word seed, and it's singular, seed, but he says, oh, they're going to be so numerous, so numerous you won't be able to count them. This is what we call a collective noun, you see. It's a singular word used for a whole group of things. We have many in English, don't we? A herd, for example. And someone say, oh, how many herds have you got? Oh, I've only got one herd. Oh, well, that's a relief. And then you say, oh, but it's got 200 cows in. And they say, oh, <laughs> you see, that's a collective noun, a singular word used for many items. A flock is the same. I suppose a fellowship is the same, isn't it, you know? And look at us all, so many. Okay, the seed. Later on, Paul is going to make great play of the fact that that's a singular word, and we'll come to that section a little later on. Verse 6, and he believed in the Lord. There it was, he believed the word of God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. On to uh, Genesis 17, and we'll begin verse 4, and here is a further development of the Abrahamic covenant. 
As for me, says God, this is Genesis 17, verse 4, As for me, says God, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations, Abraham. Neither, um, neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, which means, of course, exalted father, but thy name shall be Abraham. Raham is the Hebrew word for multitude. Ab is the Hebrew word for father. The father of multitudes you're going to be. Isn't that lovely? Praise God. In other words, Abraham, you're going to walk around and your very name will testify to my great promise and my great provision. You're going to be a father of multitudes. For a father of many nations have I made thee. Verse 6, I will make thee exceeding fruitful and I will make nations of thee and kings shall come out of you. And verse 7 is the verse we want. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now let's have a look at verse 7 in detail. I will establish my covenant, says God, between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations. And look at this, for an everlasting covenant. In other words, as long as time exists, your descendants are going to exist and I will fulfill my promises to them. That is crucial. How do we know that the Jews still have a future? Well, I'll tell you how we know. God hasn't yet fulfilled all of his promises to them. And God is not a God that he, a man that he should lie. He will fulfill his promises to Israel. Oh yes, the Jews are always, always, always going to be around. Now they're the only nation that God promises that to. And you know, history shows that indeed God has miraculously looked after his people, the descendants of Abraham. It's been miraculous. I don't think there is one nation on the face of the earth that has undergone the persecution that the Jews have undergone. Why? Some nations have been intent upon destroying every Jew on the face of this earth. And where have they got? Absolutely nowhere. The Jews are still here. The Assyrians tried it. The Assyrians were a vast empire. They were powerful. Israel was a little nation. Where are the Assyrians today? They're nowhere to be seen. And where are the Jews to the, today? Why, they're back in the land. Praise the Lord. The Babylonians tried it. Where are they? They've gone. The Hittites tried it. The Edomites tried it. The Philistines tried it. The Phoenicians tried it. They've all gone. And it's not ancient history only. Do you know that other nations have tried it through history? And always God's word has come to pass that I will curse him that curses you. Spain used to love the Jews. They liked the Jews. They wanted to have them. And Spain's empire grew and grew and grew. And then the day came when they didn't like the Jews anymore and they booted them out of the country. Within a few years, the empire of Spain had dwindled into insignificance. And do you know where those Jews came looking for shelter? To Britain. And do you know what happened to Britain? Suddenly the British Empire began. And we started growing and growing and growing. And it reached its height under Queen Victoria. You see? Queen Victoria, a Bible believer. Oh yes. Queen Victoria, who had as one of her prime ministers a converted Jew, Disraeli. And Britain was great. And then Britain decided we weren't going to support the Jews anymore. And so God's clause comes in, I will begin to curse him who begins to curse thee. And today, Britain finds itself still declining as a nation. 
primarily because of our attitude towards God's chosen people. Do you know what would be the best thing for this nation? The best thing for this nation would be if tomorrow the British government declared that they were now determined that Israel is going to exist as a nation, that they were going to support them in every way that they could, and that they were going to use some of our vast oil reserves to support them in every crisis. And do you know, overnight there will be such a change in our land that people wouldn't believe it. Overnight it would happen. Oh yes. And I'll tell you something else. We'd suddenly find more oil reserves around our coast than ever again. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It would be bubbling up in Dorset. It would be bubbling up all over the place. God's blessing would be upon us. All right? Now there is the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant, the seed of Abraham. And so I must now start talking about what we mean by a Jew and what we mean by Israel. So could we write, if you're taking notes, the heading, the seed of Abraham. And let's show that there are three categories in the seed of Abraham. Now we've got to understand this. The first we've seen already. The physical descendants of Abraham. A Jew, obviously, is someone who has the genes of Abraham in his body. Someone who is physically descended from Abraham. If you meet such a person, they are Jewish. Now, if you, you are not in that category, you are a Gentile. All right? That is what we mean. A Gentile is someone who is not Jewish. Easy as that. All right, now that's the first. But it doesn't just end there. There are two more categories which come under the heading of the seed of Abraham. Paul and Jesus had great trouble convincing the Jews that this was so. But there are three whole chapters devoted to it in the book of Romans. Now, we don't have time, of course, uh, to deal with the whole of those three chapters tonight, but I want us to turn to the section, and I want to go to Romans chapter 9, where we see a most amazing statement. A statement which agrees with Jesus' own testimony. Romans and chapter 9, where, praise God for it, Paul explains what he means. Now here, as he's writing, there is the Jewish nation still in the land, and there is also the church of Jesus Christ. And in Romans 9, Paul starts talking about those who are physically descended from Abraham. All right? He doesn't do like what many, many people in the church do today, say, oh, well, the Jews, forget them, they're finished. He doesn't do that. Many people, you know, in the church today say, oh, now the church are the new Jews. So you can forget all about physical Israel. He doesn't do that. He spends three chapters on them. All right, now, uh, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And he doesn't say who, who these things did apply to them. He says they do apply to them now. You see? And later on he says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. 
So don't think the Jews are finished. They're not finished. They've still got a place in God's purpose. Verse 5, whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And then immediately the Romans say, oh, but what's happened to the Jews then? And then he makes this staggering statement. Verse 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now, isn't that a staggering statement? Now, the Jews in these days thought, but Abraham's our father. I'm descended from Abraham. How dare you say I'm not a chosen person? They said it to Jesus. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, if you were of Abraham your father, why? You would do what I command you, he says. You would rejoice to see my day. He says, but you're not doing what your father Abraham did. To Nicodemus, who was a Jew, he was descended from Abraham. What did he say? He said, Nicodemus, you may be a Jew, he says, but until you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's as easy as that. And here he makes a statement, not all those who are in category one, that is, physically descended from Abraham, are, in God's eyes, true Israel. And this is terribly important for us to see. For two things are necessary if a person descended from Abraham is going to be a true Jew. First of all, they've got to be physically descended from Abraham, but they've also got to believe in the Messiah. So the second thing is, they are physically descended from Abraham and believe. That's the point. Those two. I think in uh, Prayer for Israel, they call people in category two, those physically descended from Abraham and who are believers in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, they call them completed Jews. You see, in biblical terms, they're real Jews. These are the people who loved Jesus when he came. He, they just loved him. They followed him. Peter was one of them. You see, he was a completed Jew, as it were. All right, now, Paul has to describe this, and look how he describes it. Verse 7, neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, that is category 1, are they all children. But, and here he quotes from Genesis 21, 12, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. Now, what does this mean? Here is Abraham... Abraham had two physical descendants. The first one was called Ishmael. And he was blessed by God, and he was the seed of Abraham, wasn't he? Oh, yes, he was. But the other descendant was this fellow, Isaac. Now, the thing about Isaac was, he was born of promise. Abraham couldn't do it. God had to do it. So this boy, Isaac, was a boy of faith. And here is the faith line. The faith line. And that's what Paul means. He says, look, he says, in Isaac your seed are going to be called. So being physically descended from Abraham does not make you a true Jew, he says. You've also got to have the faith, i.e., like Isaac had. Let's just check that up, and let's, let's just see how beautiful uh, it is. If you turn back to Genesis, but keep your finger in the place... All right, Genesis 26, 2 to 5. And here 
is God speaking to Isaac. All right? And the Lord appeared unto him, unto Isaac, Genesis 26, verse 2, and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee, for unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. Can you see that? There's an oath he made with Abraham his father, and he's going to fulfill it in Isaac. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. Does it ring a bell? It's passed down to Isaac. And will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Turn then back to Genesis 17, and let's see what he said about Ishmael. Ishmael is not a singing group, by the way. <laughs> Ishmael. Verse 18, here's Abraham talking about Ishmael. And he beseeches God. Oh God, he says, Oh that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. Notice it, an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard him, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, I will make him fruitful, will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac. Now there it is. It's through Isaac, now it comes. He doesn't stop there. If you go back to Romans 9, he then goes on and he says this. Isaac then had children. His wife was barren, by the way, so it needed another miracle. His wife's name was Rebekah. He had two children. They were twins, Esau and Jacob. Okay, now are they of the seed of Abraham? Yes, they are. But Esau didn't believe. He was an unbeliever. And therefore, in biblical terms, I'm afraid that means not all Israel is Israel. He's part of the Israel that isn't Israel. You see? To put it in, in Romans uh, 9. But Jacob became a believer. He wasn't as nice as Esau, but he just happened to believe, that's all. And all of a sudden, the line passes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. In other words, it is not just the fact that Abraham is one of your descendants. You've also got to believe in the God of Abraham. Now that's what it's all about. Uh, we get that stated again back in Genesis. Turn to Genesis 28, 3 and 4. And then we'll get on to the third group of the seed of Abraham. Genesis 28, 3 and 4. And this, this is his word to Jacob. Now, Genesis 28, 3 and 4. And God Almighty bless thee. Right, this is Isaac uh, giving God's blessing to Jacob. Make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger which God gave unto Abraham. And in the chapter before, don't turn to it, but in verse 29 it says this, Cursed be everyone that curseth thee and blessed be he that blesseth thee. 
And that's to Jacob. So the second category are those Jews who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know, once the church is removed from the earth, there's going to be a category of Jews on this earth who have been preserved by God, and they're going to believe in their Messiah. And they're going to be God's chosen people yet again, and they're going to come into all of the blessings that God wanted Abraham to come into. Bless God's wonderful name. His purposes are from everlasting unto everlasting. All right. But there's a third category. And we find this dealt with in Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, where Paul writes a chapter to deal with a problem. A real problem had come up in the early church. Galatians chapter 3. Now what was this problem? The problem was that the Jews understood the Old Testament. That was the problem. And they knew that in order to be saved, you had to be related, one, to Abraham, and two, to the God of Abraham. You had to be related to both of those. There is no salvation outside of Abraham's family at all. Right? Now, in the Old Testament, if a Gentile came along and he believed, what he had to do was this. First of all, he had to be circumcised to bring him in relationship with Abraham, and then he had to obey the law. And in the Old Testament, if you didn't do that, you were not a saved man. Right? It was totally out of the window. Now, when the church was established, there were some Jews, descended from Abraham, who believed in Jesus Christ. And they had it all, related to Abraham and related to Jesus Christ. But then all of a sudden, some Gentiles started getting saved. Now the Jews, knowing what had been going on in the Old Testament, they immediately said, ah, well, they said, now you're related to Christ, but guess what? You've also got to be related to Abraham. And the way we always did this in the past was, you had to be circumcised and you've got to obey the law. And they travelled all around the early church saying, excuse me, everybody, but the Bible says, unless you're related to Abraham as well, you're not going to be saved. The New Testament says this, by the way, it's to the Jew first and then the Gentile. It constantly makes the same point. Ah, and so all the church got stirred up. Oh, do we have to be circumcised? Do we have to obey the law? And Paul writes Galatians 3 to show how God has overcome that particular problem. Go to verse 16 and see his play on the word seed here. He knows it's a collective noun. He knows there's going to be more than one. But look what he does. He centers the promise in Christ. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds. Now the point he's making is, if he had said to seeds, anyone descended from Abraham would have come into the promise. You see? In other words, any person could say, well, I'm Jewish, so I must come into the blessings automatically. He says no. It says seed, singular, and he says, and who is that seed? Why? It is Christ. So read on. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So the promise is made, one to Abraham, and then to Christ. And his point is, you've got to have them both to come into the promises. You've got to be related to Abraham, you've got to be related to Jesus Christ. All the Jews nodding their heads off. Perfectly correct. Absolutely correct. Therefore, they would say, get circumcised, obey the law. Then he goes on to explain about the law, but his climax comes 
in verse 26, 27, 28, and 29, leave out 28 for the moment. Verse 26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Amen, they all say. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Correct? Correct. And here's the point. Christ was a Jew. That was the key. That's why Jesus Christ had to be a Jew and why he had to be descended from Abraham. Because the moment a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and they are plunged into the body of Christ, they become related to Abraham as well in Christ. And verse 29 expresses it. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And in other words, he's saying, look, he says, the baptism into the body of Christ meant they don't have to be circumcised and they don't have to obey the law. They are related to Abraham now because they're in Jesus Christ. So who else then is the spiritual seed of Abraham? Why, we are. Praise God. And so who is it? It's all Jews and Gentiles in Christ. And that's the third category. Now there it is. Now notice there are the three categories. Don't believe people who try and say, oh no, it's just number three. It's not just number three. And next time we're going to see why it's not number three. Now we are indeed saved. How come? Well, we're related to Abraham and we're related to Christ. Praise his wonderful name. That's it. But it's the Jew first, because why? Well, he's already related to Abraham before he begins. So he's easily in. Do you see? And we come in second. And God has removed the wall of partition between us. Because no more can they boast, oh, we're of Abraham, because we can boast the same now. In Christ, we're of Abraham. <laughs> and therefore, he says, so forget all the distinctions. And in verse 28, he says, now look, in Christ, there is no such thing as Jew or Gentile now. You're in Christ now, which makes all the difference, and you're co-equal in Christ. There isn't bond or free. There isn't male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Praise the name of the Lord. Next time, we're going on to the promise of the land. But to end today, I want to turn to the Old Testament and to just read a lovely promise. Jeremiah 31, which still holds true today. Jeremiah chapter 31 Verse 31 and onwards. And notice it's a new covenant. And notice we already have the fulfillment of this covenant, but it's not made specifically to us. It's made specifically to the Jews. And God will fulfill this. Here it is, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Ju Israel and with the house of Judah. There's the new covenant. Oh, sure, we are able ministers of the new covenant. That's true. But God still is going to fulfill it in literal Israel as well. It's going to come to pass. And the day will come, honestly, when the Jewish nation will respond to their Messiah. And those who respond, who are true Israel, they shall all be saved. Every single one of them is going to be saved. And it's a brand new covenant. Now, the law is going to be on the inside. Look what it says. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts 
and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. But it's the next two verses. Thus saith the Lord, and then he lists what he gives, which giveth the sun for light by day. By the way, today, did our light come from the sun? Yes, it did. Very good. Next, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by, by night. Is that true today? It's true today. Which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 36. If those ordinances depart from before me, have they? No, they haven't, saith the Lord. Then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever, saith the Lord. And listen, tomorrow morning we will know whether God has finished with Israel. <laughs> we will know, right? As soon as the Weetabix comes out, we will know for certain. For these things will have ceased. And what God is saying is forever and forever and forever, I will have dealings with this glorious people, my people, Abraham's descendants, the physical seed of Israel. And as certain as the sun comes out in the day, and as certain as the moon comes out at night, and the stars, and he keeps the sea back as well, as certain as these things, Israel will survive. That means to me that until the day when God rolls up the whole of creation like a scroll, Israel is going to exist. Physical Israel. We're going to exist too, by the way, for all of that time, but specifically physical Israel. For us, as a church, it means we have a duty and a responsibility to the land of Israel and to the Jews. We must pray for them. And let us say that our right hand shall lose its cunning and our tongue shall cleave to the roof of our mouth if we ever forget his beloved people and his beloved city, Jerusalem. We, as a church, must pray for beloved Israel, lest we become proud and think that God has ditched his beloved people, as so many Christians do today. We in the church stand, I think, at a time of great decision. And I believe we must fulfill our responsibility to God's glorious and lovely people. And our prayer must be, Lord, that they might see Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Next time, we're on to land and real estate, and we'll see the inheritance that the Jews are going to come into. God bless you all. Amen. <laughs>